Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've been doing it for over six years now. And if this is new to you, you can check out previous interviews by going to batgap.com and looking under the past interviews menu where you'll see them all organized in a variety of ways. Um, this program is made possible by the support of appreciative viewers and listeners, so if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it in any amount, there's a PayPal button on the site. And if you don't like PayPal, there's a page explaining other ways of supporting. So, my guest today is David Spangler. I received an email three years ago, I was just looking at it, from a fellow named Jose, and he said, if I could cast a thousand votes for somebody, because we have a voting system for helping to determine the priority of guests, it would be David Spangler. He said, David has been awake since he was a child, and he's had 60 years to mature in his experience and understanding, and I think he'd be a fascinating guest. And having just read a couple of David's books and listened to some of his interviews, I think I agree with Jose. Let me just read a little bio here. David Spangler has been a teacher of spiritual potentials since 1964. From 1970 to 1973, he was co-director of the Findhorn Foundation community, which is in northern Scotland. He, is it in northern Scotland? Yes. Yes. Um, he is a fellow of the Lindisfarne Association, co-founder of the Lorien Association, which is a spiritual educational foundation, and a director of the Lorien Center for Incarnational Spirituality. His work involves enabling individuals to embody the innate spirituality of their incarnations. He is the author of over 30 books, including Journey into Fire, Apprentice to Spirit, Subtle Worlds and Explorer's Field Notes, and Facing the Future. He writes a free monthly email essay called David's Desk. He also writes a quarterly esoteric journal of his work and explorations with the subtle worlds titled Views from the Borderland. Borderland. In recent years, this work has brought him into contact with the Sidhi. Is that pronounced correctly? Say that again, Rick. With the Sidhi, S-I-D-H-E? Yeah, with the she. She. Pronounced like she. Oh, uh -huh. like she, okay. Uh, the elven cousins of humanity. He describes his experiences in a book, Conversations with the She, and through a special card deck, the card deck of the She, <laughs> which he created with Jeremy Berg with inspiration and guidance from their She contacts. Information about his journal, David's Desk, and online courses, books, and workshops can be found at Lorian, L-O-R-I-A-N, dot org. David is happily married, and I've met his happy wife, <laughs> Julie, with four adult children. So... Um, we're going to start, David, I think, by getting to know who you are a little bit, by, you know, unfolding some of your personal story, which began, well, our, all of our personal stories begin in childhood, but your personal spiritual story started in childhood. Um, but before we get into that, since we're going to be talking a lot about subtle realms and the beings that reside there, um, perhaps we could just define what subtle realms are. And the reason I ask is that there are a lot of people, some of whom are very ardently spiritual and, and you know, sincere seekers, who think that all talk and discussion of subtle realms is just fantasy. I, I, I interviewed a guy named Jürgen Zewi a while back, whom you may know, and some guy 
started debating me on, on in YouTube comments about subtle realms. He thought the whole thing is makyo, which is a Buddhist term for sort of illusory and you know imaginary, and you know people are just dreaming this stuff up and it has no reality. And even if it does, it's not worthy of our attention because we should really be going for self-realization, going for the absolute unchanging truth. We can you know we don't want to get waylaid or caught up in all sorts of subtle phenomenon which might not really be ultimately significant. So you've probably heard that objection before. Um, let's just get a definition of, well, address that, but also what are we talking about when we talk about subtle realms? So um, the subtle realms are simply the non-physical side of the planet's ecosystem. If, if I think of, of the Earth as a whole entity, then it has uh, physical and non-physical aspects, just as we do. And the subtle realms is a way of talking about those non-physical aspects. And, and actually, I ag agree with the proposition that uh, the subtle realms by themselves uh, won't add or detract from a person's uh, internal spiritual journey um, any more than uh, things around me in the physical world will do that. They can be a distraction or they can be an assistance. Uh, they're just part of the environment in which uh, my life is being lived. So for me, the subtle worlds are uh, another side to the Earth's ecology. I don't think of them as um, spiritual worlds as such. They're they're uh, another area in which life is manifesting. It just happens to be manifesting on uh, frequencies of existence that are normally outside our uh, physical perception. And um, do you feel like physics provides a, a useful metaphor in terms of its understanding that the, the sort of the deeper we go into the structure of, of matter, the less physical it becomes? Well, uh, yes, it can, and certainly people use metaphors from physics to describe the subtle worlds. In fact, that's been fairly common since the 19th century. But, um, but I prefer biological metaphors, which to me uh, describe more accurately what my own experiences are like. And there's something about uh, physical metaphors, or metaphors from physics, I should say, that um, it it puts a more impersonal and and um, non-living side to it, mm -hmm. and whereas uh, biology to me emphasizes the fact that we're dealing with a living realm. Yeah, albeit one that you wouldn't be able to see under a microscope or something, because that. Such an instrument like a microscope doesn't operate in the subtle fields, or does that's, it? I mean, right. if you were someone with, with the ability to perceive the subtle were to look under a microscope, would you see subtle life forms on the microscopic level? Well, <laughs> um, uh, if you had uh, if you had a subtle microscope, you might. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are beings of all. Sizes. I, mm. I actually hesitate to use the term size. Um, I would rather say they have different. They've um, 
are patterned differently. And so, yeah, there are small beings and there are large beings, but sometimes the small ones are, in fact, more potent and powerful than the larger ones. Mm. Um, quantitative descriptions in that sense don't always make sense or are not that accurate when trying to describe subtle phenomenon. Okay. And, you know, regarding the micro microscope example, I mean, you're not really perceiving the subtle realms with your physical eyes anyway, or are you? I'm not. No, or one who no. does. I mean, are they, is it more like a subtle sense that's being used and even a blind person could have that perception? Yes. Yeah. That's correct. Okay. Which is not to say that it would be impossible to see a subtle phenomenon with your physical eyes. And, and I have known people who have done that, but that's not that common. Okay. And um, do you consider that the ability to have subtle perception like this is something that pretty much everyone may encounter at some point in their spiritual journey? Or do you feel like it's just a special aptitude, such as athletic ability or perfect pitch or something like that, that doesn't really have relevance or isn't, isn't a necessary component of one's spiritual unfoldment? Um, everybody has subtle perception. They may not be aware of it or giving much attention to it, but it's, a, it's there for all of us and the potential to use it and to develop it is there for all of us. But again, uh, as in all of these things, people will have varying degrees of of uh, that potential and of their ability to develop it. And in, in many cases, it's just a matter of uh, not, not doing the, the work or the practice necessary to develop it. Mm. But um, I want to make clear that for me, subtle awareness is not by itself a, a necessity for spiritual development. These to me are two, two different things. And, uh, and subtle awareness helps one realize the ubiquity of life in the world around one. And I think it, it expands your ability to engage with the world, particularly in, in positive ways and, uh, and helpful ways. But uh, one's spiritual development, that's, uh, that's another kettle of fish and, and one can um, progress and deepen spiritually quite well without ever having any subtle awareness. So by that logic then uh, someone could be someone could be much more advanced spiritually than someone else who has subtle perception. The subtle perception thing is just a particular aptitude that that, per, that other person happened to develop but it, it's not necessarily tightly correlated with degree of spiritual evolution. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's a mistake that people often make, that if somebody is demonstrating subtle awareness, it must mean that they're spiritually evolved, and uh, those two do not necessarily go together at all. Okay, great. Well, we'll, we'll come back to ho this whole discussion is about subtle perception and subtle realms and all kinds of things we can talk about there, but let's loop back and talk about your own life, um, which has been a very interesting one. Um, you started having sort of deep... Uh, subtle perceptions and insights and experiences when you were just a child, five or seven years old or something. So what's the first significant one you'd like to tell us about? <laughs> well, um, actually, my very first memory is of the subtle world and a subtle perception. And that happened 
when I was still uh, in a in the crib. I was a, basically a baby, um, and I have this distinct um, memory of uh, of my death in a previous life, and and um, and waking up in in what I thought was a a prison <laughs> and uh, and yelling for help uh, i wasn't yelling for help for me i was yelling for help because i died in a situation in which many people were dying and and i was trying to get help for them and died in the process of mm. trying to get help for them and so i was in a way still in that memory and uh, uh and this uh, giant came over and picked me up and I, I looked up and saw this woman's face and I, I had this very clear thought that said, oh my gosh, I'm a baby. Wow. And then that was the last thing that I, I mean, that was the end of that experience. But in my earliest years, you know, four and five and six, I had experiences of, um, the subtle energies around things, around people, around places and plants and so on. And occasionally, very occasionally, I might see a, a non-physical being. Uh, that, was, that was more the exception than the rule. Mm. But the most significant experience for me came when I was seven. And, and at that time, that's when as you said in your introduction, I woke up to the larger side of myself and and realized, um, well, actually, I, I experienced, uh, recapitulated the incarnational process that, that brought me into this life as David Spangler. So from that point onward, I, I had these kind of like a dual consciousness, uh, one as the personality of David uh, growing up as a kid, and the other was an awareness of this uh, whole other level of being uh, that was my deeper self. Take a couple minutes, if you would, just to describe that recapitulation of the incarnational process. I thought that was very beautiful and interesting. So, uh, this experience began when I was in Morocco. My dad worked for the U.S. government, and he was stationed in Morocco, and that, that's essentially where I grew up. Uh, we lived on, a, on an air base, Nuasur, that was uh, 20 minutes away uh, by car from Casablanca. So we were driving into Casablanca to do some shopping. Uh, Dad and Mom were in the front seat of this car, and I was in the back seat, and I'm looking out the window and suddenly I have this sensation like somebody's pumping air into me. I could feel myself swelling. And uh, before I could say anything, I found myself floating outside uh, the car. I was looking down at the car and I could see through the roof of the car and see me, my body, sitting in the back seat and I could see dad and mom and so on. And then I started moving through what were like clouds of light and a, um, at times they would part and I would see something, uh, individuals or or places, landscapes, 
and then they'd close in again. But it, there came a point where it was like I had crossed a threshold and, and memory kept, came flooding back. And, and actually at the time I thought, wow, uh, this must be what an amnesiac feels like when he remembers his identity because I, I absolutely remembered at that point uh, m who I was as a soul and, and um, my decision to come into life. So uh, the process began to reverse itself and I felt myself moving back <laughs> through these uh, clouds of light and found myself suddenly, uh, you know, as if I were an astronaut looking down at the earth. It was, I could, I could see uh, the earth and I had a sense of my body down there and or the potential for a body actually. And what I felt was this intense uh, joy at the, at the uh, privilege and the possibility of being incarnated. And I, I heard my name, someone said David Spangler. And the moment I heard that, that joy intensified and, and then I was back in my body. And I was looking out the window of the car and I was seeing the same scene that I'd been seeing when this experience started. And the experience felt like it went on for a very long time. But in fact, judging from how far the car had moved, it was probably only two or three uh, seconds or maybe 30 seconds at most of physical time. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit of a tangential question, but do you have any opinion on whether people actually choose their own parents. I've heard that said in esoteric circles that we're born into the circumstances that are going to be most conducive to our evolution, even though it may not seem like that because a lot of circumstances are pretty horrific, but it's actually our choice. I think like many of these esoteric statements, it's the answer is both a yes and no. That yes, in many cases, perhaps in most cases, the, the, the incarnating soul chooses many of the, of the parameters of that incarnation, where the birth will take place, when it will take place, who the parents will be, who siblings might be, and that, that kind of thing. But there are certainly situations where that doesn't happen. Either the soul is not skilled enough to, to make those kind of choices, and so it's sort of arranged on his or her behalf, on its behalf actually, because the soul is essentially androgynous. But sometimes the soul is, is it, hasn't, it hasn't moved very far away from the circumstances of its previous life. And there's a longing to be back in embodiment and that can pull a soul into embodiment without any real choice being involved. So a person might find themselves in a situation that was essentially a, a, a throw of the dice, more or less. It's not entirely random, but it's not, wasn't exactly chosen either. So yes, that can happen. I think the general rule of thumb is that most people, in fact, do choose the circumstances of their life. And, and if it's a horrific one, then yes, there may well be qualities 
that that soul is seeking to learn out of that situation. But the fact is that this is, this is a challenging world to be incarnated into. I, I think we could all understand why. And sometimes um, a soul will be born into this world and then think, wow, this was a lot more intense than what I bargained for. <laughs> or the soul may say, well, like I, I had a friend who uh, went into the military and wanted to become a Navy SEAL and went through the training but um, didn't make it. He flunked out of that training and he said, you know, it was much, much more intense than anything I had bargained for. And I think that happens for a soul too, that it may say, well, I, I'm going to come to earth and I'm a powerful being and I can do anything. And then it discovers all the limitations and challenges of incarnation and realizes that maybe um, this wasn't all that I bargained for. There was an old play, maybe it was a musical called Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. <laughs> yeah, I remember, I remember that. that. Here, here's another question that's a little bit tangential to your personal story, and I want to come right back to that. But we, since we're discussing reincarnation very matter-of-factly here, as if that's the way things work, um, not all people agree with that, even, again, spiritual people. I've, I've interviewed people who say, well, ultimately there is no personal self, there is no person, it seems like there is one, but that's just ignorance. There isn't, there isn't one. And therefore, there couldn't be reincarnation because that would imply the existence of a person who reincarnates. So that whole thing is bunk. Um, so what do you say about that? <laughs> well, um, I can understand why somebody could see it that way. Um, I don't agree with it, obviously. Um, the, the thing is that we from my perspective, and all of this is only from my perspective, I'm just drawing on my own experience. So um, you have to take that with the caveat that this is one person's experience. But my experience of the soul is that it's, it's a very complex field of life. It's not at all like a personality. You know, we think of the soul at times as, a, as just a, a larger and more spiritual aspect of ourselves. And, and there, is an, there is a part of us uh, which traditionally has been called the high self. I think of it as the incarnate soul, or the, the soul that's emerging out of the incarnate experience that is like that. It, it carries the, the vision and the seed and the potential and the, the image of all that we could be. But the actual uh, consciousness, state of consciousness, that is the soul from which the incarnation ultimately uh, emerges, is not like a person. It has individual, it is however an individuality, it has individual characteristics, but it's such a complex being and it's multi-dimensional, that is that it, it, ex it extends in so many different directions and interconnections and boundaries at that level are not quite the same as they are for us. So, you know, I, I know that I'm not Rick because my body tells me that. My body's sitting here and your body is in Iowa and there's this difference between us. But 
at the soul level, there's much more flow between us and there are situations in which it might be challenging to say, well, which one is David and which one is Rick? And yet, from my point of view, there is an individuality there. All, everything that I've encountered in the subtle world has individuality, but it may not have personality in the sense that we understand it. So I could see a person um, having an experience and saying, well, um, my personhood, my personality, it disappears, it dissolves in, in something. And uh, therefore, this must be an illusion. And there are ways in which we're constantly creating a personality that, you know, it, it may not last for very long. I mean, we have that as a personal experience. We know how much we change. But that doesn't mean there's not this core individuality that's standing behind that whole process. So I'm up for the individuality, not necessarily for the permanence of the personality. Yeah. I've also heard the notion that, and, and this is along the lines of your use of your word multidimensionality, that we actually exist on various realms simultaneously, not just in terms of gross and subtle, but and also in a temporal sense. For instance, I might die and my mother is there to greet me, and yet my mother has already been reincarnated. But in a very real sense, my mother still exists on that realm, even though in some portion of her, or in a sense, she has been reincarnated. She's still dwelling on some subtle realm to which one goes after one dies. And by the same token, you and I, even though we're incarnate, at the same time we exist in some other realm and perhaps have a very different perspective there and, uh, and a, a very different life there simultaneous to this one. Does that concur with your understanding? Yes, it does. Want to elaborate or just yes? <laughs> <laughs> yes is good enough, I guess. Oh my gosh, usually I'm accused of uh, giving long, lengthy answers. No, you're doing good. This is a nice balance. Give a one-word answer. <laughs> yeah, Larry King said sure, his hardest I, interview sure, was... I can elaborate. Uh, okay, you go ahead. You go ahead. Um, so what... So like I said, the soul is a complex field of life and consciousness. And it, from my point of view, the soul develops, it matures. And, and that development is, uh, is marked by its capacity, let's say, to do multiple things simultaneously. <laughs> it's able to, to multitask, to use a human expression. So it's quite possible for a, a soul to have part of itself in incarnation and part of itself active in the subtle worlds. In fact, that's generally the case. Um, it's, in fact, it's, from my understanding, it's not possible for the entirety of a soul to enter incarnation. It's just too complex and intense an energy field. So there's always something left behind. But how much is left behind and how active it is depends on the development of that particular soul uh, individuality and that field. Uh, and it, and this, this can get complex. It's, not, uh, it's actually not a simple question to answer, at least it's not mm -hmm. a simple question for me to answer. Um, because there are, there are layers and levels to the soul too. But keeping it uh, 
just to that relationship between the soul and its incarnate self. Um, yes, the soul is carrying on a, its life, a set of relationships and activities that are more or less independent, but still congruent with our life here. Okay. There's a part of the soul that is absolutely focused and dedicated to its incarnate aspects. And that's, that I think is what most people touch into when they say I'm in touch with my, with my soul. But, uh, but occasionally you, you realize that there's more behind that. And then there's more behind that too. <laughs> and so, it, you know, it, it keeps expanding out. And that's one reason why a person could say that at some point, what we understand as the individuality, it's hard to find it because it is operating in what for us, with our mentality and our way of viewing things, is a very diffuse sphere of activity. But it's not diffused from the soul's point of view. That's the thing. So anyway, your, your friend's mother could, could very well be an incarnation again, and yet her soul is able to resurrect that particular shape and form and persona to greet your friend if, when he passes over. Sure. Absolutely. Actually, I was thinking of myself and my mother. I'd like, like, to, like her to be there when I go and <laughs> say hi to her. <laughs> By the same token, and I don't want to spend too much time, I, hopefully that you don't consider this to be insignificant or too tangential, but I've, I've heard it said that, you know, given this multitasking theme, that one could actually be incarnate in several or, or more than one human life simultaneously. Like maybe I'm Larry Kelly up in Canada while I'm also Rick Archer in, in Iowa. Does that, does, that, does that make any sense or have you heard Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes, this can happen. Again, it, it's, well, I don't know how common it is actually. I, my impression from things that I've been told is that it's, it's not that common. And it actually depends on, again, the maturity and the capacity of the soul to to spread its energy out in that way. Mm. But there are souls that do that and are capable of doing it, or they think they're capable of doing it, and then they do it and discover it's more of a of a stress than they might have yeah. have understood. But yes, in fact, I've I knew a gentleman years ago who had um, knowledge. He knew that he was, he as the soul, was also living simultaneously in Russia as a, as a totally different personality. Hmm. And, uh, and at times he was able to shift into the soul level and shift back down into the life of the, his Russian soul brother, so to speak. Huh. Be interesting for him to go find himself over there. <laughs> Shake hands. <laughs> that uh, would have been interesting. Yeah. Incidentally, the, the, the place I'm coming from in answering these kind of questions and, and in my, the way I conduct BatGap in general is that I really uh, have a desire and I think it's important to really understand how things work. And I'm open to all possibilities, which is not to say I, I want to sort of indulge in any one of them, but I, I keep an open mind. And um, if we really want to sort of be knowers of reality, then 
it's important, I think, not to jump to conclusions and say, well, it's just this, you know, but, and, keep, and be open to the possibility that it might be far more multifarious and, um, and rich and detailed and mystical and magical than, than it, it first appears. I quite agree with that, Rick, and I, I think your questions are, are great. I don't think of them as being tangential. Okay. Um, and, and, and again, I want to reiterate that I see things from a certain perspective. I'm, I'm standing at a certain lookout point, and this is what the landscape looks like to me. But somebody else standing at a different lookout point might see a different landscape or see the same landscape from a different angle. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really helpful to be able to cast a wide net, so to speak. What isn't so helpful is when it just leads you into confusion. Yeah. And part of the challenge at this point in our cultural history, particularly here in the West, is that uh, we're fundamentally illiterate when it comes to the subtle realms. And so it's, it's hard to discern truth from fiction. You know, and in that sense, it's very much like dealing with all the stuff that's there on the Internet. <laughs> you know, what's true and what's not, and it's not always clear. And part of that is just that we don't have the same kind of insight into the subtle worlds that, say, science has into the natural world. Mm -hmm. So we, the principles escape us. And part of that, I believe, is, from my point of view anyway, is that uh, we have a tradition of viewing the subtle world through a religious lens and seeing it in some way as either a spiritual domain or an anti-spiritual domain. And, and it's not. It is a domain of life the same as this one that's, that's around me. And I think if we approach it like naturalists would approach the natural world around us, we have a better chance of, of coming to understand the nature of what's out there. This leads to a point that actually I, I find personally very interesting, fascinating. I think about it a lot. You, you train some as a molecular biologist, and so you have a scientific background. I regard anything that any religion has ever said, or anybody says, not as something to believe or disbelieve, but as a working hypothesis, as something that we could actually investigate and that we could actually get sort of peer agreement on if enough people investigated it in, in a systematic way and discovered it to be true experientially. So I think that that sort of thinking would have a lot of value for religion and religion or spirituality has a lot of value for science because science doesn't have the tools to investigate all these subtle phenomena. And yet if science really wants to understand how the universe works, it's going to have to investigate this. And what better tool is there than the human nervous system if properly utilized? So that there can be sort of a marriage of science and spirituality, which I think maybe our culture will move into over time. And it will be really valuable for a number of reasons that we can still talk about later in the interview. 
Yeah, I, I agree, Rick. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think if we're investigating the subtle world from a scientific point of view, we have to have a certain degree of tolerance for ambiguity mm -hmm. and for um, Paradox. the subjective element. Mm -hmm. And science is so into uh, quantitative measurement and control and things being precise, it's, it's actually hard for somebody trained in that methodology to shift over and develop the kind of mindset that works best in exploring the, the subtle realms. But it's not that it's, it's all idiosyncratic. Um, for example, um, I, you know, in science, it's very important and useful to have a peer group. And, you know, our scientific discoveries go into peer review. And I have my peer group. I have people who are sensitive in one way or another, whom I trust their inner perceptions. And I'll say, you know, this is what I've experienced. This is what I'm experiencing. Could you check on that for me? Could you, what do you think? And um, if they say, well, I, I think you're off the wall, David, <laughs> as they have on occasion, then that's important information. And I, I need to relook at what I'm experiencing. If they say, oh, you know, I don't see it in quite those terms, but I'm having actually the same experience. And I, I've had that happen way too many times to count. I've seen so much over the years, so much confirmation across uh, multiple sensitives that um, there's no question at all in my mind that if we put our attention to it and our resources to it, we could come up with a, uh, with ways of validating uh, subtle research that would be uh, replicable. That's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, as you know, a, a physiologist could have somebody hooked up to the appropriate instruments and from the next room he could tell whether that person was awake or asleep or dreaming. But he wouldn't be able to tell what they were dreaming, you know, they could, or, right. or what necessarily what they were experiencing if they were awake whether they were looking at an apple or a, a, an orange, he couldn't tell from brainwaves and such. Or with regard to dreaming, maybe it's more appropriate to talk about that, that, you know, dreams are very phantasmagorial and, and sort of imaginary and, and, and so on. There's very little possibility of applying scientific rigor to, any, to understanding exactly what people dream. But it seems to me that what we're talking about here with subtle realms and subtle worlds is not just, uh, it's not imaginary, we're talking about actualities, we're talking about realities that exist yet beneath the, the normal threshold of our perception. And so those things should be explorable and confirmable by peer review, as you say. Yes, I agree, yeah. Rick. It is an objective world, but it's, an, it's a world that operates with slightly different principles than this one. And so the tools that work well for us here don't necessarily work as well when engaging with the subtle worlds. We just need to develop different sets of tools. And I actually have a number of friends who are practicing scientists 
they're all getting up in years now, as indeed I am, and so most of them or many of them are retiring. But we've talked about this and something that's been very interesting to me is that there's a willingness now on the part of science to investigate spiritual states, but a still a, a deep unwillingness to admit to the reality of the subtle realms. And I find that that fascinating. And I think it's because the spiritual states are not threatening and can be seen as um, adding to a person. But if you start admitting that the subtle worlds exist, <laughs> then you, your worldview changes. And, uh, and that's always a, a scary proposition for, for anyone. Yeah. And uh, I think, and to be fair, one of my scientist friends who's a practicing quantum physicist, he said, well, it's, it's not that I'm reluctant to explore the subtle world, especially because in his case, he has his own experiences of that world. He says, I just, I don't know how to develop the experiments that would work. And it's not like going into a parapsychology lab and testing for telepathy or clairvoyance. It's it's different from that. And anytime, and actually part of the problem is anytime you put anything into a lab, the laboratory itself acts as a filter that only allows certain information in and keeps other information out. Mm. That's why, you know, in biology, you have people that go out in the field because if you're going to understand an organism, you can only understand it up to a point by bringing it into the lab and dissecting it or observing it in laboratory conditions. You, you actually need to go out into the ecology of which it's a part because every organism, including us, is uh, defined in part by the environment in which it's embedded. Yeah. I'm thinking of, uh, I'm trying to think of examples here. If, um, let's say, re last year or whenever it was, they, they discovered the Higgs boson at the, in a large hadron collider. Right. And I think probably you and I have to just take their word for it that they discovered the Higgs boson. Um, <laughs> we could even read the, look at the scientific papers they published about the Higgs boson, and it would probably be com complete gibberish to us. But, you know, we trust those guys. Enough of them concur with one another. They say they found the Higgs boson, whatever that is. Okay, we, it looks like that's part of our scientific knowledge now. So let's say you had a whole group of people who had developed subtle perception, and they were all in a situation where they agreed upon what they were perceiving. Maybe there was an angel in the room or something. I don't know, to take a simple example. And yet, we all see it. They could agree among themselves, and they could even write a paper about it, but they wouldn't pr probably be able to take a photograph of it, and they, they could tell us all about it, but we'd kind of have to take their word for it. Um, and it wouldn't necessarily be able to dispel skepticism. But... I would say perhaps that if there are systematic ways of developing that same sort of perception, then you know the, the hardest of the hardcore skeptics could pursue those ways and practice them long enough, and then he too may come into agreement with those people. This is kind of a hypothetical situation. I don't know if a hardcore skeptic would feel motivated to do that, but it's interesting <laughs> to play with. <laughs> well, actually, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, those... 
those methodologies do exist. And, and, if, and anyone that wants to develop subtle perception, there are ways to go about doing that. In fact, there's, there's a number of different methodologies for doing that. And, and some will be more successful for, with some people than, than with others. Um, just like there are different ways of learning to play the guitar. <laughs> you know, different teachers have different approaches to the process. But yes, part of it is the work involved and the practice involved and the willingness to accept the possibility. But part of it is just, you know, people believe what they want to believe. I mean, there are folks who still believe that no one ever landed on the moon. And there are people who, you know, believe that much of what passes for scientific knowledge is, is a grand hoax. I mean, Donald Trump says climate change is a Chinese hoax. Right. And that's, um, and, and, and a lot of people agree with him, maybe not about the China part, but as a, there's a worldwide conspiracy of scientists who are perpetrating this hoax. Yeah. Uh, why? But uh, to destroy American business or to pursue it because they're all Democrats, all these scientists are presumably Democrats who are pursuing a <laughs> to get, political to get agenda. funding, I mean, you know, for their studies. That's right. Yeah. It, gets, it gets pretty crazy. But the point is that people will believe what they want to believe because it's become integrated into their, their sense of their identity. Mm. And to, to change their core beliefs, they have to change how they think about themselves. And that's always a scary proposition. Yeah. Simon and Garfunkel sang, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. Yeah. Um, but, you know, have you ever read Thomas Kuhn's The, the Structure of Scientific Revolution? Yes. Yeah. So he had this whole notion of paradigms and how a paradigm is a kind of a worldview that's commonly shared among scientists and, and they tend to be rather resistant to change. But uh, anomalies come along that challenge the paradigm. And, and when the anomalies become plentiful and compelling enough, a paradigm shift is almost forced upon the scientific community. And, you know, some people say that science changes by a s series of funerals. <laughs> Basically, the, the old guys <laughs> die off rather than change right. their minds. And maybe yeah. that's the way it works. But, you know, sometimes living people change their minds. And um, I think that, you know, culturally, we used to have a paradigm where the Earth was the center of the solar system, the center of the universe. And that, although there's still some people who believe that, probably, or that the Earth is flat, you can look up websites of people who believe that, for the most part, that paradigm has been swept to the very fringes of, of society. And I could envision a time when the kind of thing you talk about is the norm. People take it for granted. Of course, subtle worlds exist. We all experience it, right? Look at those primitive people back in the 2016 who didn't believe that. How silly of them. <laughs> yeah, maybe that'll be a few hundred years from now, but yeah, things change. And, and you know, it's, there's a, there's a, it's really hard for people to... Um, it's really hard for people to imagine that the world could be radically different than the way it is now. Probably back in the 1860s, 
if you had described what we were going to be experiencing now with computers and jet planes and space travel and all that stuff, you would have been thought of it, well, maybe Jules Verne could see it, but, but nobody else, you know, it was science fiction, nobody else took it seriously. Uh, but these days, you know, it's like it's, we all take it for granted. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Rick. Yeah. Well, let's come back to your story. There's a nice little section in your book when you were about seven and you had had that awakening. And I thought this was really sweet. You said, I couldn't act in a thoughtless way or with intent to hurt or destroy without feeling immediate consequences, as if I were the victim of my own actions. And you, um, you depicted some experience where you'd been walking through a field or something and you'd had a, you had a stick in your hand and you're whacking the ferns with a stick like a boy will do. And it's almost, I guess the ferns almost spoke to you and said, why are you doing this to us? Uh, that's exactly right. Um, yeah. I suddenly felt this wave of uh, distress and, and anguish. Uh, and, you know, it stopped me in my tracks. And I, it, in that moment, I felt like weeping. It was just uh, this sadness of why are we... Why are we being hurt this way? <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's one thing if you're a plant that grows for the purpose of, you know, giving food or, you know, wheat is there to give food and, and it, it recognizes this. But the ferns weren't there to, well, I mean, you could pick a fern to eat it and that might be okay. But this was just pure mindless destruction because I was just what you said. I was walking through all these ferns and just whacking away with a stick because it was it felt fun to do, and I wasn't really thinking about it. Partly, it was the mindlessness of it that was an outrage. I mean, it's the same thing if somebody walked up to you and killed you, and you said why, and they said, "Oh, I don't know why. There's no reason. I just <laughs> just felt like it in the moment." I mean, you you could be outraged that somebody. If, if they're going to shoot you, at least let it be for a purpose other than, <laughs> and hopefully they won't shoot you. So, but yeah, this uh, experiences like that definitely made me rethink my relationship to the world around me. Because this, I should say this happened with people too. Sure. Not that I was whacking people, but I found that a careless word or something I might say without really thinking about it or hurting someone's feelings, I felt an immediate blowback from that in my own emotional body. I mean, I could feel the impact of it energetically and immediately I'd be filled with remorse, but I was feeling the hurt that the other person felt because of my words. So, yeah. <laughs> How about vegetarianism? Uh, are you a vegetarian? No, I'm not. And uh, I know that sounds paradoxical. And uh, it's partly because I, I uh, two things. One is I recognize that my body has need for uh, animal protein. I, I mainly eat fish and chicken, I eat very little beef, but you no, know, I, I was in the hospital recently and, and came out of the hospital absolutely craving steaks. Because 
because I'd, I'd had a blood transfusion, I, my blood count was low, and I just, well, I just needed what that steak had to offer. And when I eat meat, I can feel the the energy of the of the animal, and I'm always, it's always very, you know, I take it in with a sense of gratitude and gratefulness and say, thank you for the, this gift of your flesh for me. And that, that works for me. I know there are, I have many friends who are vegans or vegetarians and, and I'm fine with that, but that hasn't been a path for me. Can you feel a difference if you eat free range, grass fed, naturally cared for beef yes, or something I, versus factory farm oh yeah, kind of stuff? I can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So. skip over that one but it's interesting okay here's here's a major thing you you met a guide or a guide came to you named, whom you called John well, we should talk about John a little bit and just to introduce him here's a quote from something he told you when you were quite young he said there's a new spirituality emerging a spirituality of personhood and incarnation it will represent a new way of being in the world and then he said your work is to help this emergence so what do you say so I'm not sure that that was John. That happened when oh, I was okay. 17. Uh -huh. It's okay. I mean, it oh, you must might, have gotten it mixed up. I thought it was John. It's all right. It might yeah. well have been, but the being that appeared then didn't identify itself, and 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 that's neither here nor there. But yes, that was uh, that was an experience that I had. I was in that interregnum between high school and college, and I was on my way, as you said earlier, to pursue a scientific career. I I was really interested in biology and particularly cell biology and I wanted to be a molecular biologist. And I was out walking, this was in Phoenix where I lived at the time. I was out walking from where I lived, from our apartment, uh, downtown, which was a few blocks and, and passed by uh, the another apartment uh, complex where I happened to see a friend of, of ours, a friend of family, and she said, oh, hi, David, and haven't seen you for a while. You got a minute? Why don't you come on in? She knew I'd graduated from high school, and you know, she was curious about what was up for me, and so I, I, I stopped, and we had tea, and then she asked the question that adults always ask. So, David, what are you going to do? What's your plan for the future? And I started to say, well, Going to study to, I'm going to study to be a, a molecular biologist. And right at that moment, I, I had this vision and this being, or actually this, this figure appeared, which was like a, a, um, a mannequin from a department store, but it was glowing. It was glowing from within as if uh, it had this radiance. And, uh, and I looked at it and I saw I mean, I, I felt intuitively, oh, this, this is an, a representation of an incarnate person and there's light coming out of their incarnate state. Um, and that's when, that's when I felt this being standing behind me, whom I never actually saw. 
it was always behind me and it was saying into my ears just what you quoted. Um, there's this new uh, spirituality that honors the, um, the sacredness of the incarnate state that is emerging uh, and, and you're going to be part of that. That's, that's your task in life is to help that to happen and to contribute to it. And that the, uh, this whole thing didn't last all that long. Uh, my friend knew what was happening. She knew that I had these sensitivities. And she said, oh, you just had an experience, didn't you? And, and what happened? And I told her and she said, well, I guess that answers my question. <laughs> About what you're but gonna it, do with your life. But it didn't answer it for me because right. By God, I was going to be a molecular biologist. <laughs> and I thought, well, okay, maybe that's what I'll do late in life. You know, after I've had this other career and I'm retired, I'll do these spiritual things. Uh, oh no, <laughs> there were other plans afoot. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned in your biography, your autobiography that you kept getting this prodding to go ahead and step into your spiritual role and you kept hanging in there as a molecular biology student, and at a certain point, it's as if your capacity to remember was taken away. <laughs> so That's you, exactly you right. started flunking tests and stuff. It was in a 24-hour period, and it actually, it felt as if somebody had thrown a switch, and my mind turned off. Yeah. And it was so abrupt and so evident. Because up till then, I had a fairly good memory. I mean, I could read a textbook and it would be there for me. I would know what was in there. And, but after this, this happened, I could read that same textbook and close it. And it was like, I'd never read it at all. I, I might as well have been sleeping. Um, and I could not mentally retain the information I was getting either in class or from the books. And, hmm. and, um, and finally, after this went on for two or three months, I just said, okay, <laughs> I get the message. I need, to, I need to make this change. Yeah. And so there are all sorts of se sequence of events where you started getting invited to speak here and there, and one thing led to the next. And I don't know if we need to go into all the details of that. There's, there's a very good interview of you by a fellow named Michael, which maybe I can find and even link to where you flesh that out quite a bit. And uh, then eventually you, you came to Findhorn, and even that had a sort of a really special way that it came about. So you can help me in, in terms of deciding what order we want to take this stuff in. But incarnational spirituality, that's something you, you talk about a lot. You even sometimes refer to it as IS, as, as an acronym. Maybe it would be useful to say a little bit more about what that is, and is there such a thing as disincarnate spirituality that you would contrast it with? <laughs> so, incarnational spirituality is the name that I have given to the kind of teaching and principles and practices that have been evolving out of my engagement with the subtle worlds and in particular with a, a specific group of individualities in the subtle worlds. When John first appeared to me in the summer of 65, 
um, he said at the time. And John that, was a subtle being of some yeah, sort. He was yes. a subtle being. Right. Um, I was having breakfast uh, I, in a friend's house where I was staying. Uh, I had uh, just been in Los Angeles for about a, a week or two. And this, uh, I felt something like a wave of energy that uh, hit me. It was a bit like you know, standing in a surf and you feel the wave come in and hits your body. And then this uh, individual literally walked through the wall and appeared. And he, at the time, he was, he looked just like a, uh, like a college professor. It was a very reassuring, very normal kind of appearance and I know that that he came that way because that's what I was accustomed to and would be um, easy for me to make contact with, to connect with. And he said, um, he said, you can call me John. He said, that's not my name, but it's a name that you like, which it was. And uh, so I called him John from, from that point onward. His actual name was the energy signature of his whole being and was not really translatable into English <laughs> or any language for that matter. So John was like a nickname. And we'd been working together for about a week and all of this, I go into all this detail in my book, Apprentice to Spirit, if anyone is interested and I won't go into all the details here. But we've been working together about a week or a couple of weeks and he said, you know, I'm part of this school he, and this group and he, he referred to it as a school and I thought he meant, oh, an educational institution on in the inner worlds. <laughs> but I came to realize that what he meant was something more akin to a school of fish. That is a, or something like we say, the Chicago School of Economics, you know, which is not a actual place, but it's a body of thought. And that's what he was referring to. He was part of a field of thought. And he was a spokesman for it or its representative in connecting with me. And so a number of the things that he taught me and trained me in, in those years, early years before I went to Finhorn, later became foundational when I began developing incarnational spirituality. And I realized that in fact, John had been laying the foundation even way back then when we'd first gotten together. But uh, around uh, the year 2000, uh, more or less, John had, had left 10 years earlier, gone on to other things. But this, this being appeared very briefly and said, you know, the challenge with humanity is not that you're too incarnated, it's that you're not incarnated enough. And that was such a interesting and provocative statement that I thought, okay, uh, what exactly does that mean? And, and I need to look into this more. And it was that statement that got me exploring the process of incarnation itself.
to see, well, in what way do we need to be more incarnated? And, and one thing led to another and, and I realized that I was working with this school of individuals, this group on the inner that John had spoken about that, and that they had their own project which was to develop and to, I don't want to use the word teach, but uh, deliver, I suppose, <laughs> the ideas involved in incarnational spirituality hmm. out to where they could live and people could try them out and and could see if they worked in their lives. And, and I realized that this was, in fact, the spirituality that had I'd been shown when I was 17 years old in that vision. So, in a way, the past uh, 15 years has been an exploration and an engagement with this field of thought and this field of, of energy. And, and I go into this field in my consciousness or I engage in discussion with these beings I, or I have experiences that happened in a number of ways. And then I bring that information out and I try to put it into words and that becomes, you know, the books that I've written and the classes that I've taught. And the essential theme is about the, the sacredness of, the, of a person's incarnation. And the And see, I'm just trying to find the right word for it. The ability to stand in a sense of of sovereignty and uh, honoring of one's unique being. And it's from that place that you engage with the subtle worlds, that you engage with them as a partner. In a way, what what they were trying to say, have been trying to say, is imagine if you are taken out to dinner by a very wealthy friend and you feel you don't have any money to pay for the dinner and the friend says, not to worry, I'll pay for it. And that's a wonderful thing, but at the same time you feel beholden and you can, the, the relationship is not that of equals. But if you recognize that, oh, I've got money in my wallet that I didn't realize I had, and I can pay for the dinner too. Then now you and your friend are on an equal status. Now, he might have vast wealth. He could be, you know, Warren Buffett and have billions. He could buy the restaurant. <laughs> he could buy the restaurant. But in the context of that dinner, you're both equal and you can both contribute. And so you can stand in a place where you don't feel beholden and the power relationship is not tilted one way or another. So then a, a true collaboration can develop and that's what the inner worlds, the subtle worlds, my subtle colleagues were after. It's what John and I experienced. So basically incarnational spirituality, in part at least, is about discovering the money that you already have in your wallet so that when you engage with the subtle worlds, you don't feel 
that, wow, they've got all the wisdom, all the love, all the insight, all the light, all the power, and I'm just this poor, benighted human being. But you can say, wait a minute, we're both equally close to the sacred. We're both sacred beings. We both have something to offer and we can work together in a collaborative way and in a collaborative partnership. Great. Well, there's several questions that that inspires in me. One is that you've pretty much said that there are beings who don't quite dwell on this level of, of life that we customarily see, but who are very much concerned with the welfare of human beings and who interact with people who are able to tune into them in order to foster the welfare of human beings, in order to facilitate it. So that's an interesting thing we can talk about a bit more. And you've also just said that they are not, they shouldn't necessarily be considered superior to us. But the question arises, are they enlightened beings who have somehow finished their human incarnation and and move to something higher? Or are they just kind of in that particular phase of functioning right now and they may end up back here for all we know, just like one of us? And then one final part to the question is just that it seems like we have, we're each occupying different sections on the spectrum of reality. And we happen to be on a, a section, or at least part of us is, which is we would call kind of gross and concrete, and we can function there and they can't. And they're on another sp uh, part of the spectrum where we, we can maybe tune into it, but that's their natural habitat and they can function much more readily there than we can. Um, and, you know, some of us straddle more of the spectrum than others, but we seem to have a, a kind of a primary focal point or area of concern given our the nature of our particular body or incarnation at the moment. So hopefully that wasn't too many questions for you. To <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let me see about teasing all that out. Um, yeah, I can reiterate bits of it if you like. Thank you, Rick. <laughs> Since um, you don't have a memory anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll join you there. <laughs> what, 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 what were we talking about? <laughs> right. Who are you? <laughs> Uh, hey, let's go ride our bikes, <laughs> but, except that it's raining here. So, uh, Anyway, if I, I work with a, a variety of different subtle beings. So when I think about this group or this school that I work with, there are individuals in it who are quite wide different, across a wide spectrum of development. There's not a hierarchical relationship. It's as if you had a college graduate and you had someone who was still in college and you had a very bright high school student all coming together to work on a project. And the college graduate or the person who's been out in the world and making his or her way has something to add, the other two don't. But the high school student has something to add Let's say that they're going to work on a project to benefit high school students. And the high school student is the one who's on the scene having the direct experience of what high school students are facing. The person who's been out of high school for 20 years doesn't have that experience, but may have other life experience now and wisdom that can 
definitely contribute to this project. And the person who's still in college is close to the high school age, kind of has a grasp of what's happening there, but he's also close to the other, and so he has a grasp of that. So together they form a stronger group, a stronger uh, collaborative mind for dealing with this project than any one of them could on their own. And the relationship between them is not hierarchical, it is collaborative. So there are times when everyone needs to listen to the guy who's been out in the world for 20 years and times when everybody needs to listen to the high school student. So that's the kind of collaborative relationship that the inner world would like to, to develop. And yes, some of the beings that I work with, they will reincarnate. They um, are fairly close to the human ex incarnate experience. Um, others are not. And from my point of view, it's, it's much, it's obviously easier to deal with a being who's closer to what I'm experiencing because we at least have some reference points in common. Some of these other beings haven't been in incarnation for hundreds or years or maybe have never been in incarnation. They have deep insights, but I have to, to translate that. Even the language, even the mode of communication is very, very different than what I might have with this other entity. So together they all have something to add. Uh, individually, not as much, although any one of them could give, could be a source of some insight. But frankly, some of these, uh, what I think of as very evolved beings, uh, are in some ways don't have a clue <laughs> what life is like for, for us here in the incarnate state. And, and they, they admit that and they say, you know, um, this is what we see, this is what we have to offer you, and you need to put it into the context that's meaningful to you in, in your state of consciousness. So um, I think I've, um, I've lost some of the rest of your question. I think you've done <laughs> most of it. Um, you know, I think we pretty well covered it. Um, I guess one question I would have from what you just said is that, you know, perhaps it sounds like some beings are so far removed from the human condition that they're, we're not even on their radar. They just have another realm of concern altogether. And, um, you know, it's not necessarily their job to be concerned about us or interact with us, whereas others are very much involved. It's, it's maybe their, their main job. That is true. Yeah. That's true. And I, I have on occasion found myself in contact with one of these beings who's way out there. And yeah, it, it's interesting, but not necessarily contributive to what I'm trying to do here. You know, in some cases, because they genuinely don't know what a human being is. <laughs> hey, what kind of being are you? Yeah. <laughs> One of your common themes that you emphasize a lot, which I like, is... Um, sort of the non-hierarchical arrangement. Uh, here's a quote from you. A spiritual teacher has a responsibility to instill an independent and loving mind in each of his students. 
and here's a bit more, uh, you talk about horizontal versus vertical spirituality, which also kind of sounds like hierarchical versus egalitarian. And these days in contemporary spiritual circles, you know, there, there is a bit of a, a backlash against the whole setup of spiritual teachers sitting up on a dais and everyone else looking up to them and feeling like, oh, I can never be like him. And, and you know, there's an attempt among a number of spiritual teachers to sort of even things out and make it more of a, you know, we're all in this together and we all have something to share and we all have something to contribute. And, and you know, and this, this hierarchical thing has actually created trouble in, in many spiritual circles where people have sort of gotten puffed up with their role or, you know, all the attention and adulation they receive has gone to their heads and so on. So, I, I don't know, I, I just see it as kind of a healthy thing that you emphasize that a bit. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, I do emphasize that. Yeah. Uh, let me tell you a, uh, a story. So, I had this friend, this was many years ago, uh, back when I first moved from Phoenix to Los Angeles and began my career. But my, my friend was somebody whom I knew in Phoenix, was a friend of uh, our family, uh, but she actually lived in Los Angeles. So she and I, I mean, she was, you know, I don't know, probably in her 50s and I was in my 20s. She and I had a, a nice relationship you know, we, she was a very funny woman and we joked a lot and, and uh, things flowed easily between us, you know, when she'd come over to visit. Anyway, I went to Los Angeles and, and she said, well, I'll, I'll organize a group for you to speak to. And I said, oh, that would be great. Thank you very much. I arrived at this group <laughs> and everybody was very solemn. And I, I mean, I'm a whimsical kind of guy and I, I like to make jokes and, you know, put people at ease and, and uh, I use humor a lot. Sometimes it gets me into trouble. But I tried, um, you know, kidding with her like I had done when she visited us in Phoenix. And, oh, she, there was a shocked expression on her face and she didn't know how to respond. And I could see that she was terribly uneasy. And, uh, and finally, I, we had a break and I took her into the kitchen. She went into the kitchen to get something and I went in and, and I said, um, tell me, what's the matter? What, what is so, I can feel this tension between us, what's happening? And she said, well, <laughs> She'd been told by a psychic before I got there that I was the second coming. Oh, brother. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, I didn't know how to behave with you. I mean, suddenly I'd gone from being, you know, David Spangler to being the Christ. <laughs> Lucky you didn't pour oil on, her, on your head or something. Oh, my God. Um, I was shocked and it, it, it showed me very dramatically what happens when you get put on a pedestal and you know, this is something just on a personal level I have fought all my professional life because there's always been a tendency, not so much anymore, but certainly back in the 60s and 70s to put someone like myself who had these inner contacts or who was a spiritual teacher on a pedestal. Mm. 
And I always found that it made the work much more difficult. Yeah. Uh, I could not connect with people in the way I needed to if they did that. And, and actually, this really confirmed something that John had said when he, for a couple of weeks we were together, he said, one of the things that gets in the way of this collaboration between the incarnate world and the subtle world is what he called the problem of the transpersonal. He said, you put us on a pedestal and you want to worship us. And that creates a barrier between us because we can't, um, we can't engage with you when you're separating us in that way. And, and there's always beings, there's always people both on this side of life and on that side of life that might enjoy that and will take advantage of it. But the truly uh, higher beings, the ones that are genuinely working for the success and, and wholeness and blessing of humanity, man, this is a real turnoff and it just absolutely gets in the way and creates barriers that wouldn't need to be there. So um, how do you, you just use the word higher, how do you reconcile the fact, I guess it's a fact, that there are actually higher beings and yet on some, uh, with what you have just been saying about sort of we're all in this together, some beings may be worthy of great respect, even reverence, they are really exalted. Uh, you know, you wouldn't go up to the Buddha and say, "Hey, buddy, how's it going?" You know, you'd want to so show a certain, a certain. Well, actually, reason. I would. <laughs> he might. <laughs> but he might appreciate I would do it, it actually. in a reverent and loving way. Yeah. Um, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a difference between different levels of development and achievement, and a hierarchy as a instrument of control or ranking where um, there's a prejudicial and an evaluative component that says, well, higher is better, lower is not. Mm -hmm. um, if I look at somebody who's uh, worked in learning the guitar, say, well, I've got a piano here in back of me. And even though I took piano lessons, I'm, I'm a real novice. I mean, I... <laughs> I don't play very well. My wife is the one that really can play the piano. And I, but I look, you know, at somebody like, uh, you know, a concert pianist. And uh, yes, I would have great respect and reverence for what that person has achieved. And, and I, we might still be buddies in the sense of outside the piano realm, we could be friends. I mean, um, that's the thing. The Buddha is not closer to the sacred than I am or than you are. The Jesus is not closer to God than you are or I am. The sacred is equipresent in all beings from my point of view. But how, if we, if we could talk about the skill of playing sacredness, <laughs> um, the Buddha has a great deal more skill at that than I do. Jesus had more skill at that than I do, and I want to recognize that. And certainly I can, I can and I do reverence and honor these beings, but I don't elevate them in a hierarchical way above me. And there, there is this challenge of language, and it's one that I face all the time. How do I talk about 
these beings in a way that they are more developed than I am. But I, I dislike higher and lower only because it's been used so much and so often in in ranking ways that imply better and worse. And one could say, well, they're senior or they are, well, I mean, I just call them my friends, they're allies, they're, they're my partners. And I, I recognize, I recognize very easily actually because of the energy that they put off uh, the state of their development. And, and there are a couple of my inner colleagues who are really truly uh, radiant, highly developed beings. And I have deep love and reverence for them, but they're also just friends. So yeah. um, I'm not sure how to put it more. You're saying it clearly than that. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of the Bhagavad Gita in a way where Lord Krishna and Arjuna had this friendship and relationship. And at one point, Arjuna got a glimpse into Lord Krishna's true nature, which he hadn't sort of realized because he was just interacting with him as a friend. And he was just blown away. And afterwards, he was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry that I treated you so casually and informally and, you know, not realizing that you're the incredible status that you actually have. And, and you know, basically, Lord Krishna sort of put him at ease, like, you're my friend and you are my devotee, and the two things each have their own... That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Another line of questioning here, and if ever the, uh, there's anything I'm leaving out and forgetting to ask you and you just want to say it and I'm not asking the question, you just go ahead and, you know, say stuff. I will, Rick. Um, but... Um, I get the impression that, here's a quote from your book, it's not uncommon for certain planetary and cosmic beings to project representations of themselves and of their energies, like cells from a larger body, in a form that is more easily engaged in by the recipient. You said that a little while ago. But the, the phrase planetary and cosmic beings, I get the sense, and you would know better than I, because you're so vastly superior. <laughs> I'm just joking around there. That um, each planet, galaxy, whatever, has a sort of a, a being that's associated with it. Even if it's a planet on which there's probably no biological life, such as Neptune or something like that, but each one has a soul or a spirit. And just to extend the question a little bit more, you say that many, if not most, cities and villages or such organizations as churches or schools or even businesses have overlighting beings. They use the energy fields created by persistent and organized gatherings of human beings as an opportunity to foster spiritual development and blessing. They act as a link between that organization or place and the spiritual worlds. So there's a couple things here. One is you, you kind of say that these beings are created, or maybe it's energy fields are created by the organized gatherings of human beings. If a city forms, does that give rise to a deva, so to speak, that is associated with that city? Or does a deva come, you know, say, okay, well, here's a city, I guess I'll take on this one. And same with planets and other things. I mean, planets, you know, at one point don't exist, and then they, they form. Is it similar to sort of 
when bodies grow from an embryo into an actual living body, and at some point a soul associates itself, a soul which already exists associates itself with that body. <laughs> Did that very well, Rick. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I'm just going by the seat of my pants here. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, let's start with the. Uh, with the towns and the cities and okay, the we'll go out organizations to the planets and first. galaxies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So here's how I understand it. I mean, in a way, it's a chicken and egg question. So here you have spiritual beings who have as their function the cultivating, they're like gardeners, the cultivating of the development of human spiritual energy and awareness and our ability to inhabit this planet in a more connected and holistic way. So one thing I've discovered about the subtle worlds is that many of these beings are, are truly opportunist. That is, if an opportunity for engaging with human energy arises, they will try to take advantage of it if it's possible. So for example- Not for selfish reasons, but for evolutionary purposes. That's right, that's right. exactly right. Yeah. So let's say that uh, a group of magician, uh, magician, a group of musicians comes together and says, let's do a, a, a concert for world hunger, let's say. And now you've got 10,000 screaming people in this concert venue, yes, there will be spiritual beings, angelic or devic beings who will be attracted to this as a opportunity and will overlight that event to the extent that's possible. And that means that here's a crowd that's gathered together for what in part at least, is an altruistic purpose. I mean, they're obviously there to hear the music and to enjoy the music, and there are individuals in the crowd that could probably care less about world hunger. They just want to rock on. But a lot of people are there because, yes, this is a concert for world hunger, and, uh, and there's a raising of an energy, and so there will be spiritual beings that will take advantage of that opportunity, and maybe even, although it's as I understand it, I mean, I'm sure there's exceptions to this. They might not single out the guy who's just there to rock on, but they will m move currents of, of subtle energy, currents of thought and feeling, of compassion, of love, of awareness, of, of serving the needs of those who are hungry, you know, um, through the energy field of this crowd and that person who's just rocking on suddenly his energy field picks up some of this and takes it in and so it might just be a little bit but with that little bit he feels more compassion than when he entered and for these spiritual beings that's a success so they with a town or a city or a corporation or a a human um uh, organization that has some permanency to it, that is, it has duration, it's not coming together for a couple hours in a concert, 
a being will overlight that to say, here's a group of people who are together and together they're creating a, a collective energy field. Maybe I can interact or I will try to interact with this collective energy field to bless and, and stimulate the spiritual development of the people who are involved. And how successful that is depends on the people individually and it depends on the nature of the field. And, uh, and it depends on, on just what's being generated by the, uh, the human individuals, but the, it's called an angel. The angel is still there to take advantage of the situation if it is possible. And so yes, it overlights it and to the degree that it can, it will try to guide the development of this organization into humane pathways. So there's a situation where often uh, human beings have to uh, set the thing into motion and an angel will respond. There are situations where an angel might appear to a person and say, um, we want you to do this work, do a work, and out of that work, a collective field will develop and I'm overlighting this. And in a way, that's what happened with Finhorn. Um, that community was brought into being through spiritual guidance. And, you know, if you look at the inner life of Finhorn, the idea behind it, the energy behind it existed before the community did. So here's, a, here's an example of an egg that came before the chicken. <laughs> now with planets, you know, I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. What I do know is, I don't know if, you know, the, the planetary material begins to aggregate out of the solar dust and, and, and you have a planet forming and when and life becomes a possibility, an angel comes in. Yeah, I remember you saying somewhere in your book that, that the, the residing spirit of a planet does its best to foster the development of life. And that's yeah, in, on some on, level on or other, yes. yeah. And in our case, it happens to be on a physical level, right? Yes, that's right. I mean, my my supposition, my best understanding, barring further information, mm -hmm. <laughs> is that planets are mainly brought into being by these uh, planetary devas or planetary angels, mm -hmm. by what I call the world soul. Mm -hmm. But there may be other forces at work there and uh, that I'm not aware of, which is probably yeah. the case. <laughs> but at some point, wherever that point is, either at the beginning or a little further along, uh, there is this planetary being that becomes the insulting life of that world and becomes responsible for whatever that world is destined to do. And in our case, this is a world that hosts a multiplicity of life forms and their evolution. And in a sense, it's like our planetary is hosting a giant life party mm -hmm. in which consciousness can evolve and, and learn and have experiences. Sure. Now here in the ordinary world, as most people perceive it, there are good and bad, light and dark. I mean, there's Hitler and there's Mother Teresa, and there's 
people doing wonderful things and people doing horrible things. And when you talk about businesses and corporations having a presiding deity, you know, I mean, you know, we have Monsanto, we have ExxonMobil, you know, we have businesses which don't seem to have the best interests of the planet in mind. And, you know, traditionally in the ancient cultures, especially India, but probably other ones, there are all kinds of stories about subtle beings duking it out. You know, you have the gods and the demons that are always sort of tussling with one another. And so, I mean, it would, it would almost seem, correct me if I'm wrong, but it would almost seem that certain entities on the, certain corporations and other such entities in, in our society don't have, you know, don't have angels looking over them. They have quite the opposite guiding them. Well, this is a complex question. So let me use the Ku Klux Klan as an go. example. Yeah. So here you have an organization that is formed for nefarious purposes, basically. <laughs> and yes, it does not attract an angelic overlighting in the same way that a church would. Right. And just to stick in the thing about rock concerts, I mean, we had Woodstock and we had Altamont, you know, and it seemed right. like a very different energy was there at Altamont. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have to, you have to consider in all of these cases what human beings bring to the mix. Right. And, uh, and what is created at the, call it the personality level of the, of the collective is also very important. I mean, angels can't necessarily prevent that from happening. Right. They can attempt to move things in a positive direction, but human beings have an effect as well. And yeah. structures can be created, uh, both mental structures, habit structures, and and uh, physical structure, you know, organizational structures yeah, like that make an angel's work. Starting to say, right? Yeah, make an angel's work incredibly difficult mm -hmm. in that direction because it it solidifies and anchors in place malign or nefarious or negative qualities. I've seen this happen in or organizations, but here's the thing: Let's go back to the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan is a is a group, or it was a group. Still is. So it has a yeah, still is, but it has this. At one time, it was much more powerful than it is now. Has this collective energy, but it's also made up of individuals, and the what it attracts. Yes, there, I mean there are negative beings in the subtle world, and it can attract forces that feed off the negative energy is the fear, the hatred, the anger, all the rest of it. And as such, we'll try to promote that kind of behavior because it's like feeding time for these entities. But that doesn't mean that an angelic being wouldn't be uh, hovering nearby to try to mitigate the worst of what's happening or to take advantage of the possibility that an individual within the Ku Klux Klan could potentially have a change of heart and suddenly some inner spark gets ignited and that person says, whoa, wait a minute, this isn't really what I should be doing. 
and so I'm going to move away from this. I mean, it, there's always that possibility, however <laughs> uh, far-fetched it might be in the, in the moment. So, you can definitely have corporations that at the human level uh, are, are doing very bad things and they seem to be focused that way. And they could still have an angelic overlighting where the angel's not responsible for what it, the corporation's doing. That's coming out of the human level. And it may be encouraged by whatever negative entities that human level is attracting. But here's this massive group of people and it's not like everyone in that organization is evil. And so there are people in the organization that may be very responsive to the, the spiritual encouragement of an angelic overlighting presence. And you could say, well, if they're that responsive, why do they stay with the organization? And, you know, uh, I can, I may take that compassion that's ignited in me into some other area of my life and express it and still feel, for whatever reason, fear or I don't want to do my job or, you know, yeah. various human pressures that I have to stay in this corporation. And this is where it becomes complex and you, you just can't use a wide brush and say, wow, this is totally evil or this is totally good. Except that there are those circumstances that really do crystallize evil in a, in a particularly malignant way, as in fact happened with Hitler and around Hitler with the, the people connected to him. But even there, there must have been in Auschwitz, for instance, you know, some sort of positive beings doing their best oh, to, to, you know, ameliorate oh. the suffering. And, Absolutely. And, and That's to, exactly right. And there are some inspiring stories of both inmates and guards, you know, having epiphanies and spiritual transformations under those dire circumstances. Well, that's, that's right. That's why I say that even, even these evil or very, um, these organizations that are creating bad effects in the world, like Monsanto, they can still have an angelic overlighting. When we say, when I say angelic overlighting, I think people get the sense, oh, the angels telling the corporation what to do, or it's manipulating the corporation to do certain things. But what the angel is doing is trying to create an atmosphere in which human beings can rise to the better angels of their nature, as Lincoln said, where, where change is possible. And obviously for many people that is resisted and, and they are deep into their personality needs, their fears, their greeds, whatever, and change will not come easily for them. But that doesn't mean that there aren't people in that organization that can absorb that positivity and try to implement it as much as they can. On this theme, I've often uh, felt when certain movies have come out by people like Spielberg or Lucas or Ron Howard and others, that there's more than just the intelligence and creativity of, of the human beings involved in that project that are that is being conveyed to the mass consciousness, that, that there's some sort of divine inspiration that is using that instrument to infuse new ideas or higher consciousness or something into into our collective oh i think so yeah yes there are those projects that inspire greater negativity 
Yeah, it was said yeah. on the that on the set of The Exorcist, there were all sorts of strange things that happened. People dying and all kinds of yes. weird stuff. Yeah. Here's an interesting little theme we can talk about for a minute. Here, you know, can I come back to yes, that please. for a minute, Rick? Sure. Because I want to say this, we have this image of talking about the exorcist made me think of this. You know, here's this battle of good versus evil, you know, angels versus demons, God versus Satan. Mm -hmm. But that, to me, that's not really what's happening. I mean, I, again, I'm, take, I'm looking at the subtle world as an ecology. So, um, the summer, uh, some sewage got into the lake, that there's a lake about five minute walk from where I live. And they had to put signs up saying, no swimming allowed because the water turned, you know, toxic with the sewage. So there were, there were pathogen, pathogens, mm -hmm. uh, bacteria that you didn't want to bring into your body right. <laughs> that were now in the lake. And uh, they had to do things to clean that up. Now the pathogens, you know, they're just looking for an environment in which they can survive yeah. and, uh, and, and be fed. And in a way, when we talk about negative beings, that's what many of these beings are. They are uh, pathogenic entities that basically are just looking for food mm -hmm. and will try to create an environment in which that food is available. And it, it's not like they're terribly clever. It's not like they're this demonic intelligence that says, I'm going to corrupt humanity. It's more like um, a pressure of hunger that says, create this environment for me and, uh, and then I can live in it. And it's a kind of environment that a healthy person wouldn't want to go swimming in because it's, it's very toxic. So then what you want to do, what they did in our lake, is you change the environment. You change the surroundings and the bacteria can't live there anymore. And that's, in a way, that's how I approach this whole thing of evil, that yes, there are occasions when you have to confront an entity directly because it's just putting out that pathogenic <laughs> mm. energy and you need an antibiotic. But in, in most cases, if you do that, you, there's a possibility of creating a blowback. The being becomes immune to what you're trying to do to it. I mean, we see that with antibiotics. With what's happening with antibiotics. Yeah. But if you can alter the environment, I mean, this is basically what nat naturopathic medicine tries to do. Let's alter the body's chemistry and its environment so that a particular uh, bacteria or virus doesn't want to be there, it can't survive there. Yeah. And that's, an, that's another approach to dealing with this negativity. And it, it's, it's, it's not a battle image as much as it is, how do I, what do I have to do to cleanse this environment? It's, an, it's a hygienic process as much as it is a warrior process. Yeah. And I feel that's an important distinction to make. Also, destructive things have their role in the universe. If it were all just creation, it would be imbalanced. I wouldn't want to be a dung beetle, but they have a role to play. Or, you know, the, all the bacteria that break down a corpse and return it to its fundamental elements have a role to play, and so on. Well, that's exactly right. Well, that's, a, that's something else again. So there's two different things happening here. There are beings that, that if we just look at them, 
from a normal perspective, we'd say, wow, that's a dark being. I mean, I wouldn't want to associate with that. But it's not a dark being. It's a being, I mean, it's not an evil being. It's a being whose function is to break things down. It's a decay eater. Uh, you know, it's exactly what you described. There are Yeah, vultures like to eat carrion, you know, and it's... Exactly. It's, it's, there are forces in the inner world that that is their function. Mm -hmm. What becomes problematic is when a human being says, wow, I could try to harness those forces. I could invoke them and try to use them to give me power. And that's what happens when we say, boy, what if I took the smallpox virus and weaponized it? Yeah. What if I take anthrax and weaponize it? I mean, that's a, from a biologist's point of view, yes, you can do that, but it's, it's criminal. Yeah. <laughs> but there are individuals that tune into these otherwise perfectly okay entities in their own environment and say, I want to bring you out of that and put you over here because I think you'll give me power. I think you'll do something to enhance my, quote, magical, unquote, capacities. And when that happens, then you've got people dumping, metaphorically speaking, sewage into the reservoir yeah. in order to make people sick. That's a, those beings are a little different from entities that, I, that are disconnected from anything, that have become broken and pathogenic in some way. Often, not always, but often because of human activity, because of our projection of negative thought and emotion. And, uh, and, and some of these beings are in fact our energetic children that emerge from us in a broken state. These are not beings or these are not forces that can break anything down. They're not doing a service of decay. They're just like uh, floating ions, you know, that, that are looking for something to attach to. And that's a kind of negativity that one uh, has to protect against and and perform energy hygiene to clear that out and to prevent that from infecting. Yeah, and speaking of energy hygiene, a lot of people have told me that they f often feel, so often when they've reached a certain stage of enlightenment, that they, ha they, they become washing machines for collective consciousness, that a lot of stuff, they process a lot of stuff. And... Uh, I used to be in the TM movement, and Marshy was fond of setting up big groups of meditators, you know, 1,000 here, 8,000 there sometimes, because he felt it would have a profoundly cleansing effect on collective consciousness for so many people to be doing such a thing together. So I just thought I'd throw that in. But. Yeah, no, that can happen. It's not, a, it's not something that automatically happens as a person develops a consciousness. But it could be a path of service that yeah. a person enters into, absolutely. So there's an interesting theme here. I want to read a few quotes from you. We can talk about this a bit. You say, The sacred cannot be adequately described as either a single source, a oneness, nor as multiple sources interacting together. It's something else that embraces and holds both of these manifestations. But how can something be one and many at the same time? Whatever the sacred is, 
it may be neither the one nor the many, neither a oneness nor a diversity, but rather the capacity to be either as needed, and I might add both simultaneously. Differences generate creativity, and differences arise from boundaries and thresholds, uh, that is, things that separate. That's a very interesting theme. Want to talk about it? (laughs) (laughs) Sure, you bet. So here we are having this delightful conversation. And part of what makes it possible is that you're not David and I'm not Rick. And we have these differences. And you see things a certain way. And out of that perception come your questions, but also your comments, your insight, your wisdom. I see things a certain way and the same thing happens. And we may not agree on some things, but we may find insights arising that neither you nor I would come to just operating on our own. So in that sense, the fact that you're not me and I'm not you has enhanced the, the field of energy, has enhanced the possibilities of knowledge, has enhanced the growth of spirit around us and between us. So, you know, when we talk about God, we well, actually, when, when we talk about just about anything in the subtle worlds or the spiritual worlds, we're, we run up against the fact that we have to use words and often linguistic concepts and cognitive concepts that have evolved in a very constrained universe, a three-dimensional world with a with time flowing in a single direction. And this, it means that anything we say about the sacred is, is in some way going to be inaccurate because our words aren't big enough and flexible enough to capture that reality. Sometimes poetry and metaphor and music and dance maybe get closer to it, but not necessarily. I think we just need to recognize that there's something there we can experience that we will never be able to entirely put into words or into a finite expression. So in saying, well, maybe the sacred is both one and many. It's, it's the capacity to be one or the other. Uh, I'm trying to capture that sense of this, uh, something that can't be entirely defined as one or the other. And so it leaves us to resolve that paradox. And in seeking to resolve it or in seeking to experience it, actually, we may come to a deeper insight that otherwise would escape us if we only said, well, God is one, or if we only said God is, there are many gods, and it's a plurality. So I, so going to the other part of your question, I do celebrate separation and difference, because, and I use the example in my books and classes of the paper towel. If you spill water on the table, and you take an ordinary sheet of paper, like I would have coming out of my printer, and I lay that down on that water, 
it will absorb some of it, but it won't absorb very much. If I take a paper towel and put a paper towel down on that water, it will absorb quite a good deal more. And the reason is that the paper towel, even though they may have the same dimension, you know, they're each 8 by 11, the paper towel has more surface area. Why does it have more surface area? Well, it's covered with all these little bumps. And uh, all these little individual bumps add to the, the absorptive power of the paper towel. So this is my paper towel theory of creation, you <laughs> see. <laughs> that each of us is a little bump on the paper towel of creation. And each of us absorbs something out of the universe. We have a perspective that no other being has, and we can see something that no other being sees. The important thing is that we absorb together. I mean, we're all part of this paper towel. So if I just keep my perceptions only to myself and never share them with anybody, then that separation gone amok. But if I say I'm separate so that I can absorb something that you can't absorb, it increases the surface area of divinity. But we need to share, we need to collaborate. Mm -hmm. Then then this difference serves us, the separation serves us, and it's not a an obstacle to our harmony or our wholeness. It's an adjunct to it. So we're villi in the cosmic small intestine. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to quite go there, bit, but yes, <laughs> um, you're right. So Finhorn was an amazing place. Um, it was northern Scotland, sandy soil, cold climate, and yet it, and it was in a trailer park where one half of the trailer park was people that were working at the local air base and the other half was the Finhorn community. And on the Finhorn side, it was like a little Garden of Eden, now, all sorts of beautiful lush foliage and plants growing. And there was even some guy that was skeptical of, of you and brought some rose plants that he knew couldn't grow in that climate and came back a year later and they were thriving. So, you know, we talked a little bit about global warming earlier. It would seem to me that everything you're talking about here and, and what Finhorn represented has in, in, in very important implications for ecology and for the, the future of our planet as a viable place to live. Oh, I, I quite agree, Rick. The important lesson from Finhorn is a lesson of collaboration between human beings and the subtle worlds, in this case, the nature spirits and the devas. So human beings just doing their thing and gardening could not have produced the results that Finhorn got. But the devas and the nature spirits could not have produced those results either. It was the two species working together in collaboration. To me, this is the one of the key teachings, if I may put it that way, or, or demonstrations of the Finhorn community. And the Dave has always said through Dorothy, who is their primary contact, Dorothy McLean, if you work with us, we can 
transform the the pollution that you're dealing with. We can we can truly turn the planet itself into a garden of Eden. So yes, this is one reason why this is one reason why there's this project team that I'm involved with, and I'm I know that it's a reason why I went to Finhorn as a way of of experiencing for myself the concreteness of this in action. But this project team is saying, we want to have greater collaboration because together we can do things in the world that will enhance its health and its wholeness. Things that you can't do, things that we can't do if we're just working on our own. In order for us to have collaboration, you need to be able to stand in a place where you honor your spiritual nature and your sacred nature. And you can meet with us as equals and not put us on pedestals, not worship us, not fear us, not um, you know, consign us to your imagination, not call us fantasy, but you can, we can work together as, truly in a partnership. So part of incarnational spirituality has nothing to do with the subtle worlds directly, but has to do with how do I as a, as a person learn to stand in this, in this sovereign place, in this attuned and sacred place? How do I change my image of who I am and how I function in this world? And then from that place, I can engage with partners from the subtle worlds. And together we can do things that uh, we could not do separately. And I've, I've seen this demonstrated in a number of different circumstances. So I know that it works. And it certainly worked at Finhorn. That was really at the core of that community's founding and its initial demonstration. So that leads into a question which would kind of give us a good place to conclude on that came in from Aurelian Carnoy. She didn't mention her location. She said, what practices, or I presume it's a she, what practices are there to cultivate subtle awareness? What can we do as individuals and as humanity at large to bring about a Findhorn-like world? So excuse me for um, doing an infomercial, but the best way I can answer that is to say, check out my book called Working with Subtle Energies, because mm -hmm. it's I don't have a simple answer for that. And, or, or Journey into Fire, or one of the Lorian classes, because that's exactly what, what we deal with. Having said that, and I know that's not the most satisfactory answer, because sound may sound self-serving. First, each individual has a unique relationship with the subtle worlds. If we think of ourselves as, as sensory beings, we know that we experience the physical world in different ways. You know, my wife drinks licorice tea and it's sweet to her. I drink licorice tea and it's bitter to me. She can never understand why I don't like licorice tea by itself or why I, if I have it, I put honey in it but it's really, for me, foul tasting. Mm. But for her, it's lovely and very sweet. 
just by itself. Yeah, dogs eat things that I wouldn't find very appealing. Well, <laughs> that is definitely true. Um, but we all have these, these subtle distinctions in how we experience the world. And that extends into the subtle worlds too. So part of what, part of it is that there is no single technique that will work for every person. It's an exploration. And, and basically what I try to do in my classes and books is to facilitate the exploration and say, here are some principles to look at and ways to go about it, but I don't try to give a specific technique. Because I don't know if, it, if the, what works for me will necessarily work for you. I'd like you to explore this on your own. For you to do that, you need to come to a place where you can say this is possible. Uh, I'm going to take the step into saying I can be aware of the subtle worlds. Because in fact, all of us are all the time. We just don't recognize the signs and symptoms of it. For one thing, we have privileged the mind. Coming out of the age of reason, in the Western world, we have so exalted reason and the mind and mental capacities that when we say, how do I connect with the subtle worlds? I have found doing workshops on this for 50 years that most people think of it as a mental activity. Something happens in my mind, you know, through my imagination or through some opening in my crown chakra or something. But it's not. It's, the mind is involved, but it's a whole body process. Every part of us is involved. So if many people get uh, quite distinct and clear messages or, or information from the subtle worlds that comes through physical sensation. I, I have a close friend who does this all the time, but she was at Finhorn for a number of years, always suffered from the idea that, gee, other people can know, see nature spirits or get these messages, but I can't. And for years she felt she was the, you know, the bump on the log that could never see or hear anything. The control group. <laughs> yeah, but then she realized that in fact she was receiving quite a lot of information from the subtle world. It just came to her in a different way. And it came to her through her body in ways that she learned how to recognize so the first thing I need to do is to say it's possible and I just start to pay attention. We then get to this place where a person says, but is it my imagination? Can I trust this? And the answer is yes. Some of this will always be your imagination. The imagination is an integral part of perception. That's true on the physical level. And it's definitely true in, this, in dealing with the subtle worlds. But it's not all imagination. And you need to be able to go through the imaginal, imaginal aspects to touch the reality that's, that's behind it. And for that, you have to trust yourself. You have to say, this is a process. And I'm not going to short circuit it by saying, Oh, it's just my imagination. Maybe it is, but 
let me set that aside for the moment and go more deeply into the experience and see what else starts to unfold. So there are steps that we can take, but many of them begin with this place of saying, I'm going to accept myself and see myself as a trustworthy instrument in making this connection. Great. Well, I think this has been a real useful conversation for, for me, hopefully for the listeners. I think it's really important for us to have a, as clear and detailed as possible an understanding of the territory, so to speak, both because it's inspiring and motivating and also because, you know, it's uh, helpful in, in navigating the territory. If you have an idea of what's <laughs> yeah. out there and you're going along and experience something and you hadn't even known that such a thing exists, it could be disconcerting. Or you might, um, you know, have a very skewed understanding of, of what's possible and mistake something that's actually not that important for for something that is and waylay yourself for a while. So I think the, the better we can understand the whole spiritual realm um, in all of its details and nuances as spiritual aspirants, um, the better off we'll be. And, and I think you're really contributing a lot to that. And I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rick. And I totally agree with what you just said. And what's important for people to know, I believe, is to to listen to different voices. Yeah. Because none of us have the whole picture. I have part of that picture. And I'm always appreciative when folks listen to what I have to say, but I by no means have the whole picture. And there are many other people out there who are contributing their insights and their awarenesses. And so, you know, let a thousand roses bloom in this case and and as long as we exercise our discernment uh, i have uh, i have a couple of principles uh, there one is no if a being says uh, you are my children and do what i say because i know more that's a huge red flag i'm out of that one if if a human being is put down in any way, or I find myself dealing with some kind of celestial hierarchy, I get out of that one too. I want to, to understand that however it comes out, whoever it comes through, the push from the subtle worlds is to empower and to develop the means for collaboration, not for control not for obedience. That's great. And so in, on that note of different voices, I mean, that's the nature of this show, every week a different voice. And uh, there may have been a time in my development where I f would have found that a little confusing, um, but these days I just find it enriching. And, um, you know, it's uh, every new ingredient added to the stew seems to make it more tasty. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so you can think of me as a, you know, 
yeah. a potato. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, you look a little bit like a potato. I don't know. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's when I take my eyes out and my ears off and no, my don't mouth do that. off. You know, you see, wow, he really is Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> uh, so thanks so much, David. I could easily go on another couple of hours with you, but out of compassion for you and the audience, we won't do that right now, but maybe another time. Okay, Rick, thank you very much. Actually, I'm starting to lose my voice, so ah, this good. is a good place good time for a break. So let me just make a few general concluding remarks. For those who've been listening or watching, this is an ongoing series, as I said in the beginning. It exists both as a video thing on YouTube and also as an audio podcast. And there's a link on the website where you can check out how to subscribe through various ways uh, as an audio podcast. Donate button is there interviews, uh, I mean, schedule of upcoming interviews, all the arrangement of the past interviews organized in different ways. So just explore the menus and you'll find some different things that I don't want to just enumerate right now. Check out the site, batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. And we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thanks, David. Thank you.